Last week, we uh, talked a little bit um, about a tendency that uh, Western culture, especially the United States here, we, we compartmentalize our faith. Uh, we become pretty comfortable at separating our spiritual lives from other parts of our lives, from our relationships, our sexuality, um, our entertainment choices, our, and our financial decisions. And so we used this image of a, of a chest of drawers or a dresser. Here's what I was told. I was informed this week that um, if it's wider than it is tall, it's a dresser. And if it's, you know, taller uh, than it is wide, it's a chest of drawers. I don't know. Call it what you want to, okay? But, but here's kind of the deal. We, we, we use this to illustrate that we, we like to separate our lives out. And so what we do is we, we have one drawer. They're going to bring up some slides that we called our, our work drawer. And, you know, kind of represented by those kinds of things. And then we have uh, our relationship, family, love life drawer. Um, then we have a, a recreation drawer, you know, entertainment, leisure. We have a politics drawer, you know, and we don't want that to rub up against anything else. We have a financial kind of money drawer, and, uh, and then we have this spiritual life drawer. And most of us are fine that when we come to church, we said last week that uh, most people are okay if somebody opens the spiritual drawer. But the moment that somebody starts talking about, you know, these other drawers, maybe your relationships or uh, about your marriage or especially somebody starts getting into the money drawer, it's really possible that they're going to get the, the drawer slammed shut on their fingers. And uh, because people just don't, don't want to do that because we like to separate our spiritual life um, from, from, from everything else. But what we discovered last week is that this idea of compartmentalization is not rooted in, in Jesus. It's not rooted in the Christian faith because in the Christian faith all of life is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Every, every part of life needs to have this biblical foundation. And, and it's not Jesus' intent to be one of many drawers. Jesus wants to be that which everything in our life is contained uh, in and submitted to. And so we use this, this imagery that this is just the way it works. And Jesus says, if you want life in me to actually work and flourish in this world, if you want to capitalize on life, then you can't compartmentalize. So if you're trying to live out the Christian life where, you know, this is just kind of who you are on, on Sunday, if you've got your religious self over here and then you've got these other areas of your life kind of scattered around, that's not the Christian faith. You're talk, you, you may be talking about some kind of faith, but if that's what your life is like, your faith life, then you're not living out anything remotely compared to the Christian faith. And Jesus says if you want to capitalize, you can't. You can't do this compartmentalization. Uh, it's just not the definition because everything is spiritual. 
And so, you know, we talked a lot about, last week, about money principles. And we're going to do that again today. And here's the, here's the, the issue. You know, we could go into a lot of detail uh, in here about financial management. We can look at, uh, we could look at how to set up a budget. We could look at what percentage you should give of your income to God. We could look at, is it, you know, before or after taxes? What percentage maybe you should save from God's word? How do you avoid debt? We, we could look look at all of that but here's what I'm saying none of that really matters if we don't first get uh, into our lives the truth that Jesus is Lord over all of it all those all those details the scriptures give us those details but none of those matter until we get to the place where we understand Jesus is Lord of all unless we get that you're going to have a hard time really putting into practice any other biblical truth that God's word gives you in this area so lordship the lordship of God of Jesus is the issue and so the question here is is Jesus Lord over this area of your life and it's really one of the most important questions, if not the most important question, the Bible asks when it re talks about money. Uh, another topic that is kind of a question that we need to kind of wrestle with is, is, is how much is enough before you'd be satisfied? Any of y'all ever watched Jeopardy? You watch Jeopardy? Okay, we're going to play Jeopardy for a moment. Here's, here's one Jeopardy question. I want you to, to, to play with your neighbor next to you, okay? Here's, here's, here's the Jeopardy question of the day. When interviewed, this wealthy business tycoon replied just a little bit more when asked, how much money does it take before you are satisfied? Tell your neighbor. Dum, 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 dum. Here's the answer. Who was John D. Rockefeller? Now, if, you're, if your neighbor did not form it in a question, they blew it. Okay, you remember, you got to put it in the form of a question. See, that, that John D. Rockefeller answered that question, he just said, it's a little bit more. J just a little bit more. And I think if we were honest, most of us would kind of answer that question the same way. If I had just a little bit more, I'd be satisfied. Just, just a little bit more. You know, then we could take that family vacation we've always thought about, dreamed about. We, maybe we could then, if we had a little bit more, we could move into that new development over there with a little bit bigger house. Or if we had a little bit more, we could finally start being generous. And that list could go on and on and on. We could just stand here and talk about that all, all day. And yet... Those who have actually experienced being on the trajectory track of getting a, a little bit more each year will be the first to tell you that it does not in and of itself bring satisfaction. And Jesus says the same thing. In fact, if you look, if you had, do y'all know what a red letter edition Bible is? Okay, a red letter edition Bible. If you, if you had a red letter edition Bible in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, the words of Jesus are in red. And what that means is, uh, Jesus, if you looked at kind of topics, if you had a topical Bible like that, you'd notice that pretty quickly about 500 verses, if you were thinking about prayer, would be red letter. That Jesus would talk about prayer about 500 verses. Another 500 verses would be Jesus speaking on faith, the topic of faith. But when you came to money and resources, there would be about 2,000 red letter verses where Jesus is talking uh, about this. Why, why do you think so much uh, Jesus does that, talks so much about money? 
Well, because Jesus knows that it touches every aspect of our, our life. Every single day. Every, every moment of the day. Every second that we're awake. And if we were being honest, even those moments when we're trying to fall asleep and we can't because we're consumed with thoughts about finances. And Jesus, Jesus knows that. I like the way that the World and U.S. News Report put it a few years ago. Uh, when they wrote this, it said, For most of us, money and our feelings towards it are dynamic and intense. We love money or we hate it. We fear it or we worship it. But we certainly never ignore it. We, we just, we don't ignore it. And, and that's a reality that God's Word knows about us. And so it has a lot to say here. And so we've entitled this series Capitalize. And because we want to think about how do we, how do we capitalize whether you have a lot or a little. And I want us to think today about how do you capitalize when you have a little. Now I imagine if you and I went to lunch right after service today and we, we sat down and talked and all of a sudden I, I just kind of looked at you and asked you the question, are you wealthy? Are, are you wealthy? Now you probably laugh at me, you know, just like some of you just did. But I would venture to say that the majority of us in this room would, would kind of start get, you know, rattling off some, some things. You might say, now no, but the, the, the guy down the street whose house is, you know, about $100,000 more than mine and, you know, 2,000 more square foot or, or whatever you say. Now that guy's wealthy. Or you might say something about a rich uncle or you might say something about the, the owner of the business that you work for. And then you would probably get to the end of all of naming all of those wealthy people and then you would just kind of disqualify yourself and say, I, I, I'm not wealthy. And so I think most of us in this room would, would probably land, even if, even if our, our understanding is a little fussy, I think most of us would say, no, I, I, I don't have a lot, I, I, I have a little. I don't know, maybe you, maybe you have read the unusual story about a woman who, who lived outside the United States and her husband had passed away. And if she receives any kind of support at all, you know, she's on a fixed income and if she receives any kind of support at all, it would just be probably pennies, some change every day and she's poor. She's also a woman in a, a, a male-dominated culture and she's uh, really not been able to land a, a, a job and she has, you know, no retirement plan and it's not really her fault. It's just kind of, she's kind of stuck in the situation and most of us, we would probably look at that and say, man, Joe, that you just kind of laid out a worst case financial scenario, you know? But one day, this, this woman walks into this, this center, this massive religious center where people would, would gather and it's filled with gold everywhere. On the walls, the, you know, the, the, the elements of things, just everything's gold. And there, there are a lot of uh, finely handcrafted ornaments all over the place. And, and yet she's this very poor, very simple woman. But she's gone there to worship. And part of the worship uh, that she would participate in would involve giving. And so she dips her hand into her pocket and kind of searches and finds what, what she has left. And, you know, it may have been the way she got that day, but it was only two coins. And those two coins actually happened to be her life savings. And they're the smallest of coins. Um, they're, they're, they're actually kind of like pocket change. And, and what would she do with them? She, she feels them in her pocket. What would she do with them? She could keep both of them. 
She could give one and, and keep the other, which would be, you know, giving 50%, which is, you know, pretty generous by standards today, I would say. She gives that much away. But instead, with a grateful heart, as an act of worship, she drops both those coins into the offering receptacle. And then she continues on with her worship. Now, many of you realize where that story came from. The story's right out of God's Word. It's actually uh, told by Jesus. And it's something that he was bearing witness to. Now, most scholars believe that this story actually takes place. This encounter, this account, this observation that Jesus makes actually takes place on the Tuesday before his death, burial, and resurrection, before his crucifixion. So this is in the week that we know as the Passion Week leading up to, 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 to Easter. And those of you that are familiar with the story would know, would remember, Jesus never even has a conversation with this woman. He, he simply observes her from a distance, so it's not even an encounter. It's more like a, a, a non-encounter. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them to, to Luke chapter 21. This is also recorded by Mark uh, in his gospel in Mark chapter 12. But in Luke 21, before we start reading it together, I just want to set the stage for just a second. Uh, both Mark and Luke uh, recount that just before this event, that uh, earlier in the day, Jesus had warned his disciples about kind of the trappings of the, of the Pharisees, of the religious of that day. The pretense and the pride that they have when they they come to gather for worship and so this comes right on the heels uh, of Jesus kind of being hard uh, on that group of people and right on the heels of that this is this is what we read I want, uh, normally we read from the ESV but today I want to uh, come from the New American Standard just because of the way it translates a few words um, it says this in, in Luke 21 it says and he looked up this is Jesus and saw the rich putting their gifts in the treasury and he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all, out of their surplus, put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Now see, Jesus, uh, you know, what immediately jumps out to him is Jesus is saying, this is what is good and right about her life. Whether you have a little or, or whether you have a lot, we all need to make the most of what we had. We need to learn to, to have this generous spirit. Now, I, I don't know how many of you could, you know, have, could relate to the trouble that this woman's faced. I know that some of you, because we have prayed together, some of you have walked through seasons where you've lost a job. And you didn't know what was going to happen next. You were trying to find a, a job and you couldn't. Some of you are on disability. Some of you have battled through depression. Uh, maybe recently some have experienced, gone through divorce that you did not want. And suddenly now because of whatever, whatever external reason, you know, whether it was a wife's choice that you made that hasn't really played out yet or a foolish choice that you made and you're living out the circumstances or, or maybe you, you find yourself in the middle of a circumstance that you really had nothing to do with and it's just been kind of falling on you. But you've, no matter what, you find yourself with very little and you find yourself in need of money just to try to make, make ends meet. Well, this, this widow, she had almost nothing to give, but she still gave. 
And so God's word here, Jesus shows us that even though we may only have a little, we can still have a, a, a generous heart. Acts chapter 20 records Jesus' teaching that it is more blessed to give than to receive. So what I want to do today is I want to I give, uh, just kind of lay out four applications around this, this issue. Is, and it's simply this. What will it take for me to be generous when I only have a little? What, what, will, what would it look like for me to be generous if I, if I only have a little to give out of? Well, here's the first thing I see. The first thing I see is this, that it will take humility... It takes humility to give when you only have a little. You, you've got to have a, a humble spirit. Now let, let me do just a little bit of unpacking of what was going on that day, you know, in the first century temple worship where Jesus, uh, you know, witnesses this giving ta taking place. See, back in the temple courts, there were um, 13 receptacles for collection. Some churches d don't pass a plate to collect the offering. They'll have these receptacles for giving and you can uh, drop those in and we're, we're probably going to put some of those out one day. But Jesus, it, it, this is what's going on. But here's the deal. They were made out of bronze. Okay, they were made out of bronze. And so what happened is people would come by and, and they would walk past and they would drop their coins in these bronze and, and re, they're kind of trumpet shaped. And so oftentimes they would just kind of swirl. How many of you have ever seen one of those giant gumball machines that's got the track on it? Sometimes they have lights in them and those kinds of things, you know. And, you know, the kids put their quarter or 50 cents in and they go over and crank it and the, 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 the real attractive ball of sugar comes, you know, you're salivating as it's going around. Well, those things are designed so they actually make a noise so that all the other kids in the restaurant you know, hear that and then they have to, you know, go too because they, they want to see it. So, you know, everybody heads turned when somebody gets a, 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 a gumball kind of thing. Well, that's kind of what happened when people would give at the temple. The, the, the money would just kind of kind of swirl around. And so Jesus had taught and, and warned about this kind of arrogant, prideful show that people would put on when they were giving. And so let's say they, they came to give $500 that they did. They would stop by the bank first and get it all uh, transferred over to coins. Let's say quarters. And then they would just come in and they would, you know, drop that $500 worth of coins in in such a way that it would gravitate around that bronze horn as much as it possibly could to make the most noise to get, get the most uh, uh, attention. And that's what they would do. And the kind of the longer and louder the sound, the more you were kind of thought of as, as being a great giver. And they loved it. And they accomplished what they set out to do when they gave that way. They got everybody's attention except the attention of God. They did not get God's attention. Because see, God in the flesh was in the temple that day. He, he, he was there and Jesus points out the contrast of, of what's taking place. When this widow comes and she drops by those, those little coins, they made almost an indistinguishable sound. They almost could not have heard them. And Jesus calls attention to her. God saw that kind of giving. And he points it out. You know, he's, he's all-knowing. And he knows what's going on in her life. And basically, he says to his disciples, she gets it. She, she understands. She's given more than anybody else. And you can, if you know anything about the disciples, you can almost see the boys kind of chuckling. Saying, 
Jesus, dude, man, they, it didn't even make a sound. Nobody looked. Nobody's looking. Nobody saw what's going on. But God saw. God saw what was going on. See, Jesus realized that she had given everything she had. This was not some pretentious display. It wasn't too impressed or attract notice. She, she had given in such a way so that the only person that really mattered to her noticed. God, God noticed that day. He saw her heart. It's interesting that the word translated about the kind of coin she gave is, is the word that also we get translated as peeling. It's kind of like a little peel, a little sliver because the coin was so thin. I mean, it was almost like a peeling. And a lot of times in that day, coins had their value based on actually how much they weighed. It was just kind of a shaving of a coin. But Jesus knew her heart for her heavenly father. He knew that God had instructed all of us in, in, in matters of the heart. Uh, back in the Old Testament, uh, Samuel, the prophet, heard from God one day about how to go find the new king. And, and Samuel was looking for the king based on outward appearance. Here's what God's word said to, came to the prophet and said, it said, the Lord does not see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at your heart in, in all matters. Dr. Martin Moore said it like this. He said, Jesus doesn't measure gifts with a scale, but with a thermometer. I love that. He doesn't measure with a scale, but with a thermometer. In other words, what's going on inside you when you give is what God is concerned about. In 2 Corinthians, God says that he loves a certain kind of giver. You remember what kind? Cheerful. He loves a, he, he's, he's concerned about what's going on inside of you. And see, on that day, God was there and he knew the whole story. And he knows your story. And he knows what you're keeping for yourself, holding on to, and what you're giving to him or giving away to others. And maybe this woman who had given away everything she had, maybe she, maybe she had a plan. Maybe she had decided she was going to fast the rest of that day so she could give this gift to the Lord. But Jesus points out to his disciples... He points out that when you give out of your poverty, it will take humility. Here's the second application. It'll take initiative to give when you have a little. It'll take initiative. This is where you have to put kind of your foot forward in a certain direction. You, you have to kind of say, I, I, I'm able to trust God. I, I can trust him. I can worship him despite my economic depression or hardship. The truth is it takes trust, it takes faith to be faithful and to keep giving to what God is doing in this world. Not, not blaming him. This is where so many people get stuck. They start blaming him for their financial struggles. Instead, you have to take, you know, you have to take the initiative. You have to stay involved. You have to engage. And see, that's part of the reason why we just launched Financial Peace. And let me say this, though they started last week, it's not too late to get in. This is a great study. Um, it meets in room 105. They'll meet at 4 o'clock today. And so here's the deal. If you are one of those people who says, I don't have much financially and you need some help, you can get some help there. This class is for you. If you make a lot of money, but you find that it disappears quickly and you don't know where it goes... Financial peace is for you. You know, if you've racked up a whole lot of debt regardless of your income, then you should take the initiative 
and, 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 and get into this class, you, you will not regret it, I promise you. I can testify to that personally and there are others in our church who can testify because it will help you it will help you if you're on this pathway, not just get out of debt, but more importantly, to be a wise steward of all that God has given you. Now, back in Luke 21, the, this lady, she goes, this widow goes to the temple. See, she's not, she's not giving up on God. She's not forsaking the worship of God because her situation is difficult, because she's financially depleted. She still has faith. She's still trusting God and she comes to worship God in spite of how little that she has. Paul writes about a church uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he writes these words. He says, although they were going through hard times and were very poor, they were glad to give generously. They gave as much as they could afford and even more simply because they wanted to. They even asked and begged us to let them have the joy of giving their money for God's people. That passage is about a church in Macedonia. Now, not the Macedonia that's just next to, you know, Mount's Corner. Not that one. Okay? This is Macedonia over, over in Greece. And this was a very, very poor congregation. And Paul's pointing that out. But he shows that even in their poverty, even though they were in dire straits where they were, they begged for the privilege to give generously to the work that God was doing elsewhere. It's just a great picture of what God's people should be living like. What church should be. A third discipline, application I want to give you is this. It takes discipline to give when you only have a little. It, it, it'll take discipline. See, once the widow was at the temple to worship, she didn't just passively sit there. She engaged. She participated. She got involved. She worshiped. She gave as an act of worship. And maybe she was just this discipline giver. She, she intentionally gave to the work of God. Now, we haven't really talked about it, but I, I don't know if you know that there's actually some upsides to living with humble means. Uh, God's word points it out uh, one way in, in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 8. I, I love the way the NCV translates this. It says this, The rich may have to pay a ransom for their lives, but the poor will face no such danger. You know, if you, if you're, if you don't have a lot, the very few people are going to kidnap you for ransom. You know, that's, a, that's an upside. You know, one of the other upsides is most of the time when you have a little, you don't spend as much time worrying about something coming and taking what, what little you have. And see, King Solomon knew all this. He, 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 he picked that up on that. He understood it. When you have a little, one of the things that you have to do is you have to discipline yourself in, into generosity and giving. It doesn't mean that you have to stop giving to God's work. It doesn't mean that you cease being generous. It just means that you may have to discipline yourself. It, it takes discipline when you have a little to give God back his tithe. To do it in the first fruits kind of way because you come to understand that his word says this belongs to him. And you may not know it 
But there have been lots of studies. You've probably heard some of them. And, and they kind of repeat these studies over and over again. And they almost always reveal the same thing. Recent studies have shown that once you exclude the top 1% of, of the wealthy in our, in our nation, when you get, you know, you, you skim off the, the, the Warren Buffetts and you skim off the, 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 the Gates uh, family, Melinda and, you know, um, Bill, you, you kind of skim that off and you do a comparison of those who have a lot with those who have a little, that it's kind of shocking, but year after year you find that those who are more generous are those who are further down uh, in that lower income. Independent sector, it's a nonprofit organization, they, they kind of track charitable giving. And one of the things they found uh, in, in one of their studies was that households earning less than $35,000 a year in the United States give away on average 4.2% of their income. That's less than 35000 while those earnings with more than 95000 gave away 2.7% of their income to charity. Now, that's sad. It, it's sad that, it, it, you know, statistically, the more we get, the less we, we give. That something happens in our hearts from this getting disease. And so the question we have to ask is, am I leaving my financial situation in the hands of God? Or am I trying to control it for myself? Now, neither of those percentages lines up with God's word for giving, but it just says something about those who have less giving more. It says something about, about our hearts. And so I don't know which camp you fall into. I don't know, I don't know whether you fall in the less than $35,000 camp or more than $95,000 camp. But I do know this. God's word says, and I've experienced it and some here have, there is incredible joy that comes from giving. And I've watched it happen over and over around here. One of the things that... I had the privilege of doing this week and hopefully we're going to be able to put it together and you're going to get to see pieces of it. Is I get to and our staff and our elders often get to see some of the results of your generosity and we, we want to do a better job in the days ahead of, of pointing it out. This week I, I watched videos that some pastors had sent to me who are the beneficiaries of a ministry that you, you give to. Uh, Pastor Kurt, as many of you know, is we've sent him out as a kingdom coach. And what he does is he goes out and he encourages and he loves on and he, he, he tries to help train pastors who are struggling in, in struggling churches. That's mostly who he works. It's not, not exclusively, but, but mostly. He does coaching there. And one of the things that uh, you may or may not realize... Um, I read about it. I, don't ex I haven't personally experienced this, but there are many pastors who battle with deep depression because ministry can be so, so hard and they're not in churches like this one who love on their pastors the way that you guys do, but they just battle, it battles hard. And the suicide rate among pastors has jumped exponentially recently and there's been more media coverage of that. And what you do when you give through the ministries of River Bluff Church, you support a ministry that goes against that, that stands against that. You also support a, a ministry over in the Midland Park community that's feeding and clothing the poor. And those of you who volunteer there, you, you, you encounter these people week, week after week who are in search of something. Sometimes they're searching for food. 
Sometimes they're searching for clothing or, or housing in search of a job and searching of just somebody to pray for them because they don't know if they're going to make it through the day. And when you give through this church, that, that happens. Your gifts help support a, a space for a counseling center that cares for and loves on people in incredible ways. And it, uh, it, there's just so many, I, I could go on and on about this. But what you give when you give generously to the work of God is making a difference when you discipline yourself to do that. Fourth application that I want to give you is this. It takes trust to give when you only have a little. It, it takes trust to give. And, and this is important because the trust piece is really at the heart of giving. It's at the heart of generosity. See, when you let your faith continue in the midst of difficult times, when you discipline yourself to give even when it seems impossible, you're communicating to God and to the watching world, I trust you, God. And he, he knows that. He sees your trust. He, 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 he knows that you're trusting in his unfolding plan, whether you can see it or not. You're trusting in God. You're saying, God, I believe that you are bigger than the money I have or don't have. God, you're, you're bigger than my salary. God, you're bigger than my resources. You're, you're bigger than, you know, my, my financial portfolio. You're bigger than all of that. That's what you're saying to God when you trust, when you have just a little. And so here's the question. Are you willing to do that? Or are you, are you doing that? The psalmist writes these words. He says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Sometimes people think that fear is the opposite of faith. But it's not. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. But the pathway, the pathway of, that leads you to unbelief, how you end up at the destination of unbelief, that pathway is most often fear. That's the path where people end up at this place of, of, of unbelief, is passing through fear. So the question is, when, when you are afraid, what do you do? Do you put your trust in God, or, or are you willing to do that? And I don't know... I, I, I don't know what details would be how God would choose to bless you if you trust him. Now, I know that you could go to some churches, and in some churches, what they will tell you is if you'll, you know, give God $10, you, you can expect a boatload of money next week. Uh, he's going to bless your socks off. Now, while I do believe that God will bless your socks off, I think sometimes focusing only on financial return is missing the mark. Because, see, God has a vast treasure chest of ways he can choose to bless you. It, it, much, much difference. Oftentimes there will be some financial care and shepherding from God involved in his blessing. But I think we get too wrapped up in the material end of that. See, God may decide that the way that he's going to bless your giving and sacrifice is he's going to give you a peace. You're going to be able to sleep at night. You're not going to worry about the things that you're worried about when you trust him with your giving. Or, you know, he may give you an ability, a, a new way of thinking to help you think about how to get out of this differently. He may equip you some different way. 
He may cause your household appliances to live longer, not die on you. He may keep your car out of the shop. And I've seen God do all of those things. He may stretch your dollar. See, he can do whatever he wants to, to bless you. But you've got to understand something. No matter how the blessings come, you cannot outgive him. You just can't outgive God. It, it, it can't happen. And I have, in the time that I've been in ministry now, I've had Christian after Christian, believer after believer, come to me and say, when we started tithing, we've learned to experience a joy in God that we never knew before. We didn't know that we could really trust God this way. And if that's your testimony, I would love for you to just kind of bullet point it out and email it to me. I, I would love to have that. We want to share those. I remember one time after giving a message on, on giving. Uh, after the service, a man came down and said, can I meet with you sometime this week? And we set it up a time to, to meet. And it was a man I'd actually known for, for years and years and years. And later in the week we met. And he had actually been in the, the ministry. He'd served as a pastor uh, overseas. And they came back to the States. His wife developed a, a, a chronic uh, kind of debilitating disease. They had, they had kept their house uh, here while they were overseas and rented it out. And they came back and moved into it. But uh, he couldn't get work. Uh, and uh, eventually they had to sell their house just as a means of, of surviving. And he began attending our church. And uh, the, the church where he had served overseas heard about his situation. And they sent him $10,000 and said, we just, we want to bless you. You loved us well when you were here. And they, they, they sent him $10,000. And what he wanted to meet with me for was, he said, God is calling me to tithe on this. What do you think? And I said, I can't tell you what to think. If you've heard God, you've got to follow through with what God said. He said, I don't know what's going to happen when this runs out. And I said, I don't either. What is the Lord telling you? And he said this. He said that he's going to be faithful to me. And he wrote out a check to River Bluff Church for $1,000. Because he had learned to, to trust God. And I can tell you other stories of people who, who have done this. They, they not only talk about having faith in God. When it comes to their finances, they actually begin to trust him. And here was this woman. She could have kept all she had. She could have kept half of what she had. But she gave it all to God. She gave it all away. I remember hearing a, a story about a man who had um, inherited $10 million. Didn't know it was going to happen, but he inherited $10 million. And um, he, he also had a heart condition. And so his family didn't, his family was concerned that when he found out that it may give him a heart attack and you'd die. So they were trying to figure out how do we tell him that he's, because this would be great news. And he would, you know, he could quit working. He was a hardworking farmer all of his life and he could maybe rest finally. And so um, the family decided what they were going to do was they were going to call the pastor and see if the pastor could figure out how to do this. So they worked it out. So the pastor came over and um, was having dinner. And at some point in the, the meal, they were having great fellowship together. At some point in the meal, uh, the wife looked at, at, at the pastor and kind of 
gave him the look. Uh, you know, sometimes y'all do that to me. You give me the look like I'm supposed to say something. And um, he got the look. And so he, he kind of said, hey, Judd, just hypothetically speaking, man, what would you do if, you know, you just suddenly inherited $10 million? And old Judd thought for, thought for a moment. And he said, well, pastor, the first thing I would do is I would give your church $5 million of it. And the pastor dropped dead of a heart attack right there. <laughs> See, we, we, um, we, we have this idea about money. And we, we think our life is, you know, kind of controlled by it. But friends, giving, the, the giving journey, the financial journey according to God is really a trust journey. It's really a trust journey. And so here's what you have to trust basically this. You have to trust that God can do a better job when you live on 90%. This is really what his word gets down to. If you, God can do a better job with 90% than you can do with 100. And, and so this is kind of what I would call one of the great big ultimate faith questions, especially on this subject of finances. Do I believe my 90% goes further with God's blessings, do I believe that? That it goes further with God's blessings than my 100% can go with just my efforts? Do, do I believe that? Do I trust God that way? See, that, it, it comes back to this. You know, am I, am I gonna keep it all for myself and miss the blessings of God? Or do I believe that I am worth more to God than my, my financial portfolio? See, in, in the Gospels, we have this example of this widow and, and her generosity. And I don't know if you know it, but in the Old Testament, there's another example of this. It's in 1 Kings chapter 17. And it, God sends the prophet Elijah to a town called Zarephath. And in Zarephath, that region, they were in the middle of a horrible famine and drought. And God told Elijah to go there. And Elijah's thinking, why, why would I want to go there? God, how am I going to eat? There's no, there's no food. But Elijah went obediently to God and God told him when he got there to look for a widow. And so as soon as Elijah gets there, sitting at the city gate is this widow. And God had told Elijah, ask the widow for something to eat. And she, so he does. He, he says, can you get me something to drink? Can you give me something to eat? And so she goes and gets him some water and comes back. But she says, I, I can't give you anything to eat. I have enough flour and oil left just for, for one more meal for my, my son and myself and then we're going to die. That we're just going to, I'm, I'm going to fix this last supper and then that's going to be it for us. But God tells Elijah to tell her something. This is what God says to tell her. He said, tell her this, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops go, grow again. Now you might say, that can't happen. You might say, that's too much to ask God for. You, you might say, it's too much to, to ask God to provide. You might say, it's too much to leave to, to, to being unknown. But verse 15 tells us that the widow goes home and she does what the prophet says and she made some for Elijah and then she made some for herself and her son and that she did it again the next day 
And she did it again the next day and the next day and the next day until the rains came and food came back. God continuously, miraculously multiplied what she had. He stretched it out. Why? Because God always keeps his word. Because God never breaks a promise. In Malachi chapter 3, I want to read it to you in a different translation. It says this. It says, bring one-tenth of your income into the storehouse so that there may be food or provision in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord of armies. Says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and flood you with blessings. God says, test me in this. Put, put me to the test. Don't compartmentalize. Capitalize and see if I will not bless you in ways you couldn't imagine. Whether you have a little or whether you have a lot, God says, test him in this. It's why we give a money back guarantee. This is going to sound strange to some of you new around here, but we give a money back guarantee if you start tithing because God said, test you. And the church ought to provide a way for you to put God to the test. And so if you tithe for three months and don't experience the blessing of God, we'll give you your money back. Okay, you got to record it. We got to be able to record it. You can't just show up one day and say, I give $47,917 this month. You know, you, you, you got to be able to do that. But he says, put, put him to the test. Put, put him to the test on this issue. Because he wants you to know that he is trustworthy. He wants you to know who he is. That he's faithful. I started this message talking about comparisons, you know. And why we would maybe land saying, I'm not, I'm not wealthy. But see, here's the truth. If we, if we went global and compared ourselves, if you live in this country, you're already blessed. You know, we have no idea how good we've got it until you travel somewhere else. We're, we're just so blessed. And the question to all of us in this is this, will we use the resources that God has blessed us with? Will we use it for his purposes or will we keep them only for ourselves? Well, what did Jesus do? Look at what Jesus did. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might be made rich. See, Jesus' story of leaving heaven and coming to earth is a riches to rags story. We always, we always lean into the rags to riches story. But Jesus went the other way. Jesus, you know, if he's our Lord then our lives should somehow, should somehow reflect his life. Somehow that should happen. Yesterday, uh, I was here for the men's breakfast. It was great breakfast, great time of fellowship. Next time we have one, guys, I encourage you to come and participate. When I left here, I, I went up Dorchester Road, and I got stopped at that light right next to Gerald's Tires. And Gerald's has this sign. You know, and I don't know if you've seen it, but every so often John 3.16 comes up on it. And while I was sitting there, John 3.16 came up on it. You remember the first part of John 3.16? God so loved the world that he did what? He, he, he gave. See, the way that you and I become most like our Lord, the one that we say we follow is by giving. It, it is by giving. You know, it, it, it's by, by recognizing. And here's the deal, folks. The most important thing to give God is not what's in your wallet or your purse or from your bank account. The most important thing that God wants is your heart. 
Above all else, God wants your heart. God knows when he gets your heart, everything else will come. And so God, God comes after your heart. And that's what he wants. He wants your devotion. And if you've never given your heart to Jesus, if you've never repented of your sin, confessed the name of Jesus above all, every other name, given yourself to be baptized publicly, to proclaim, to associate yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you have that opportunity today. Our, our team's going to come in a moment. And we're going to worship God again. We're going to give through worship. But if you've never given your life to Jesus, you may just want to sit there and pray. You may just want to talk to the Lord for a moment. Or maybe if you have given your heart to him already, but you're withholding from him. You're not trusting him. Maybe you just want to sit and pray and let him speak to you. Maybe you have some decision to make today. And I want you to know that after the service, I'll be down front. And if you need help processing any of those decisions, I'd be glad to, to help you do that. But what you need more than anything else is to give yourself fully to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that even that last week of your life leading up to what you knew would be your death, the pain that you would endure. Even, even then, you looked past all the trappings into the heart of a woman who had a little. And God, that, that helps us know that you can see past all the stuff of our lives in this world, and you can see our hearts. And so we come now, God. We come bringing our hearts to you, bringing our lives to you, our devotion to you, and God, we, some of us have to confess to you that we are withholding. Some of us withhold our, our treasure. Some of us withhold our talent. Some of us withhold our time. We keep these things to ourselves. We hoard them instead of giving them generously to you. And God, maybe today we've been reminded, or maybe for the very first time, we come to understand that there's a better way. If we quit compartmentalizing, we could actually capitalize on life when we see it all belonging to you. And so we come now, Jesus. We come bringing you our heart, first of all. We come bringing our gifts, our offerings, bringing your tithe back to you. But most importantly, we bring ourselves again. And maybe today that's what you need to do is you just need to rededicate yourself to the Lord. So that, like that day he was in the temple, you would know that he's in this room. And he sees you and he knows you and he knows your struggles. But he wants to care for you. And he wants you to know you can trust him. So right now, just bring him your heart for the first time or once again. Jesus, we come to give you our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.